Greetings. My name is Robin Calamayo, and I've been asked to do the message at the Connection this week. Since it's coming up on Easter, I felt like it'd be a good time maybe to go into John's recording of the Last Supper. So I'm basically going to look at verse 1 through 17. To preface this, I have a website, freelygive-in.com. It's short for freely give because I've been freely given. I have what's called the running oration there, and it's probably one of the best things I've ever done. I decided to compile from the upper room all the way through the ascension and make it in one reading. I used Luke as the bedrock for the timeline because in the very beginning of his book, he said that he had written everything in consecutive order to most excellent Theophilus. Being a non-Jew, he thought in chronological order, and I've been told that the Jews didn't necessarily do that when they wrote. They wrote more by subject. But regardless, um, that's why I use Luke as the timeline for all these events that occurred. And so I have two versions of this running oration. One is where there's no breaks in it at all. There will be little notations, uh, superscripts. Then you can refer at the back of the article where that came from. I have another version, though I break it up by what I call scenes. So it'd be like in the upper room, that is a scene, and then there's different subparts of it. So that way a person could actually work through it event by event that way if they wanted to, or you can just read right straight through it. Well, I want to refer back just a teeny bit to a couple of little things in this John 13, because John, I think it's 90 or 92% of the material in his gospel, you won't find in any of the other three. So. Scholars are convinced that John knew what was in the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and there were things that he wanted to add to the record that wasn't in those accounts. So that's why his material is quite different and a lot of unique accounts there. But in Luke, this is what he said, And when the hour had come, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer earnestly desired. He's literally saying, with lust, I have lusted to eat this Passover with you before I die. It's epithumos or epithumio. It's the word for lust. And that's like a word that you got to know what the context is. It can either be used for a great strong desire for something evil or a great strong desire for something that is not evil. Now, beings, this is going to be the last time he has suffer with them in the earthly form that he'd taken. It seems kind of funny that he would be so desirous of this. Well, if you go to my running oration, you'll see that there is a tremendous amount that happened in that upper room. We're just going to look at a little part of it, but some of the things that occurred there in that last supper, first of all, it goes all the way from John 13, it includes John 14. So everything in there was spoken at the last supper. But also in the other accounts, you'll find things like the Lord's Supper was instituted there. The breaking of the bread and the drinking of the wine, do this in remembrance of me. There was a point where he was letting them know he was going to be betrayed by one at the table, which that's also in John here. But the disciples start asking, not I, Lord, and they, there's a panic between all of them. They're questioning their own self. It's not going to be me, is it? I think what happened, the dynamic as it went on just a little bit, was, wait, it's not going to be me. Maybe it's Matthew. I mean, you betrayed the Jewish people anyway as a tax collector. 
Look at Simon the Zealot. You want to flush him out instead of doing all these miracles and not overcoming the Romans, get him in a trap where he's got to exert his power. In fact, some people think that about Judas. So we find that they argue among themselves at that table, who is the greatest among them? As a group, they were mad at James and John because just previous to this, their mother had come up before Jesus and bowed before him, and Jesus asked, what do you want me to do for you? And she said, well, grant that when you come into your kingdom, then my two sons, one will be at your right and one will be at your left. And he said, you don't know what you're asking. And it says that the disciples then were indignant when they found out about that. You got your mama coming to make a case for you two why you should be at his right and his left in his coming kingdom. So there's all this internal strife with these disciples. It was also during that exchange where Jesus told Peter that he was going to deny him three times because Peter said he's ready to go to death with him. He also talked to him about the Holy Spirit coming after he goes. He's not going to leave them as orphans. It was also in the upper room where Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, and this is what's so famous, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's all in the upper room. So this was a packed time period where Jesus imparted a tremendous amount to the disciples. And I think that's part of the reason why he earnestly desired or with lust lusted for this Last Supper because he had said just before this that he didn't speak on his own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So when he gets then to this supper, right on the heels of that statement, I think he was not looking forward to the ordeal he was about to go through, but he was very eager to share with his disciples all of this material. That's where we're going to now start with John chapter 13, because this is part of what happened at the Last Supper. Now therefore, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, as I was reading that, there's a couple of things that kind of jumped out this time. He says that he should depart out of this world. This is an adjective, and it's a demonstrative, pointing to this world, which insinuates there are other worlds. Well, we know the angels abide somewhere. We also know that there's a coming new heavens and new earth. And wherever Jesus went before he ascended to the Father, I mean, it's hard to know how many worlds or dimensions or environments where morally accountable beings exist or reside or will exist or reside in the future. But this world, what we're in right now, is very real, but there is going to be more than just this world. But knowing that his hour had come that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He knows he's leaving them, though, in the world. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't even like the thought of leaving my two daughters in this world. 
I feel like I want to be here as long as I can to be of support to them as they journey through this life. I don't like the idea of leaving them behind. Jesus knew he was leaving the disciples behind. Now he does say a little later in John here, he's not leaving them as orphans. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. So his presence will be there. He also knew he's going to rise from the dead, but he is leaving them in this world, in this age of temptation, an age where Satan is active and can pull all kinds of stuff to damage us and trials and troubles. And those that you love, don't you want to protect them from these things? You do. I do. And to think about leaving them and not being able to be of some assistance and help for them to navigate their way through this age is an unhappy thing to think about. Because all I really care about when it's all said and done is that they get through this life and endure to the end. And if I could be here to help them, do everything I can to make sure that happens, I want to be here for that. I don't like the idea of leaving people behind to this where I can't be a benefit to them. Well, Jesus, he'd been with these guys for three years plus. They'd been through all kinds of things. And now he knows he's going to leave them. And even though he was longing for this last supper, it had to be very bittersweet is all I can say. I, I know it had to be. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Now I want to stop right there. Earlier, Satan had entered Judas and Judas had gone to the chief priests. And he made arrangements to betray Jesus and it said the Pharisees were delighted. They had no idea that they were looking at Satan in the flesh and they delighted in the deal he brought to them. Satan appears as a messenger of light. I guess you'd call that light. Satan will come to meet us and if it's in an area of darkness and corruptness, he'll come and meet us there to encourage and bolster that. If it's in error, like the Pharisees, he'll come and bolster that. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he'd come forth from God and he was going back to God, what did he do? Now stop. Knowing the Father had given all things, all authority into his hands, he rose from supper laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. This is so astounding. He's getting ready to go into trials that were filled of lies, slander, injustice, and then to a scourging and to a cross. All authority had been given to him by the Father, that's why even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he said, Who is it you're seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. And they all drew back and fell on the ground. It's like it knocked them all down. And they scrambled back up. He said, asked them again, Who is it you're after? Jesus of Nazareth. He says, Well, then let these go their way. So Jesus was in command, even in his own arrest. He also had said to him, This hour and the power of darkness has been given to you. And Jesus submitted to that even knowing that the Father had already given him all authority. It's clear that after the resurrection and, and now that he's got all authority in heaven and on earth. And we would think that all happened after he obeyed to the point of death, even the death of the cross. 
But in truth, we find that God the Father had already given him all the authority. It's almost like on credit. And yet, uh, Jesus does not use it to deliver himself from the horrendous death that was coming his way. Oh, I could say an awful lot about that. So, he lays aside his garments, and he starts washing the disciples' feet. I'm not going to get into all the tradition of that, but that was the role of a servant. And so he came to Simon Peter. Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Well, Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no heart with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Isn't that Peter? And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Now let's just stop for just a moment here. You can see that he's doing something physically. He's washing their feet. But then there's something symbolic going here because he says, you are clean, but not all of you. So you're already clean. So you just need your feet washed. What do you think he might be talking about? When you become a Christian, he says we have been forgiven because the blood of Christ has paid for everything we are. And he's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And yet, we still sin while we're here to varying degrees, varying seasons, varying ways. That's going to be our reality for the rest of the time we're here. The truth is, I don't think we have any idea how much we sin. It wasn't long ago. I was driving into work, and it was like the Lord arrested me. Look at what you've been thinking about for the last 10, 15 minutes. And I kind of did a cursory glance through of what all these thoughts were I'd had. And it's like, good grief, there is so much sin in it. Just so much, not righteousness, let's put it that way, for sure. We don't have any idea how much we sin. That's why Paul at one point said, I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not by that acquitted. In other words, Paul knew, even though he didn't realize it, there would be times he'd be sinning. The way I've been wanting to phrase it here as of late is I'm not a redeemed sinner. The sinners that focus there. I am a sinner redeemed. So that way I can acknowledge my sin, but I'm redeemed. There's the focus. In other words, I come to the Lord, I need my feet washed. That sin does impact our relationship with God. So the sin does need to be addressed and needs to be removed. And he says, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All that other stuff we don't even see that we've done. Then we can begin our transactions with God. I think that's at least part of what he's talking about. But then he goes on here. When he'd washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for I am. The I am. That's a declaration of God Almighty himself. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example or a display. I put underneath you a display 
that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, the slave is not greater than his master, neither is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. So you, as a slave, you're not greater than your master, me, and you're not greater than the one who sent you. And you see what I've done to you, and you need to do it to one another. Now, how does this look in reality? I can't tell you. He says, let our people learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs that we might not be unfruitful. You might think you're running around serving people, and you may just be enabling them in some instances. We need to learn from God how to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs, to serve in a way that has the desired impact, where it's genuinely assisting. Sometimes I have felt the assistance needs to be a warning and leave them alone. Let them make their own decisions, help them to see that it is their own decisions, and they're going to live with the consequences of those decisions. If, if you choose this direction, how's that going to affect me and my life and what I do? Well, it won't. What about if you choose this direction? How's that going to affect my life one way or the other? Well, you know, it might, but for the most part, I'm going to still continue to do whatever I'm going to do with my life. So I try to make sure that they can see that whichever way you choose, it will impact me to some degree maybe, but not enough where it's going to knock me off whack. So you need to think in terms of your own interests. And I'm not trying to manipulate you because whichever way you go, I'm still going to go my way. I'm still heading towards Mount Zion in the far north. God willing, I'll never divert from that. But many times our service is just where we help them emotionally, just with our presence, sometimes physically. And I think that we need a lot of wisdom from God and promptings from God, you might say, of where we should be spending our energies and what true service will look like that will be of genuine benefit. Another thing that needs to happen, we also need to learn what our gifts are. and. We just got to ask God. He says that when we're born again, that the Holy Spirit divides individually as he wills. You may decide you want to be a teacher of the Word of God, but if he hasn't given you that gift, you're just trying to do something you're not gifted at. So we all have different gifts, and he also talks about the special gift that we've been given. We're to employ it as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, the many-folded grace of God, where he individually gifts all of us charisma. We're all charismatic Christians because we've all been gifted by the Holy Spirit when we turn to the Lord. And we have at least one gift, and we're to employ that in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And then the Jesus concluded this when he said, the slave is not greater than his master, neither the one sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Boy, Christianity is a call to action. I have a lot of pet peeves about Christianity that I've experienced in America. And one, for example, just off the top, there's, well, there's many things, but one, you'll have some churches, they focus on all the end times teaching and they get into all these end time scenarios and get locked into that. And it's all that teaching. And, and a lot of times they never address their own personal behaviors. It's always looking out here and what's going to all happen and all that type of sensationalism really is a lot of it. And people are curious and they want to know how it's all going to end. Well, then that's all they're listening to and hearing. 
And you're never talking about your own personal behavior and relationships and gifts that you might have and serving one another in so many, many areas that, that needs to happen. And I'll just tell you one glaring abuse by the church as a whole is the whole subject of money. What God says about our money, about our finances, about our financial ministry. I don't know that I know anyone that teaches correctly on that. And it can be a tremendous area of service if you can get into the New Testament particularly to see what God says about money and what I call cash compliance for the Christian. What God wants us to be doing with our cash that comes into our hands. It is so mistaught. And maybe I'll do some videos on that at some point here. But on this thing of service, Jesus made one other comment at the Last Supper. The disciples, they had begun to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing, betray Jesus. And there arose a dispute among them then as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. That's all fallout from what James and John's mother had done and James and John being right there with Mama, Simon being his elder. So who knows? Anyway, Jesus then said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. But let him who is greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the servant. And this is another way Luke put it. For who is greater, the one that reclines at table or the one who serves? It's the one that reclines at table. But I am among you as one who serves. So Jesus gave them an example and gives us an example. And what is amazing to me about this, and I think I'm just going to stop with this, because I don't have answers for you or anybody else what this means for your life and what he would have you to do in serving others. But he knew that the Father had given all authority into his hands. And what does he do? He gets up and he starts washing the disciples' feet. That is an astounding, powerful display of humility that is beyond me. That kind of power of humility. And here he was, and that's what he did. And we're called to be like him. Christ-like. Man, I got a long ways to go. I think the very, very last thing I want to say on this is I don't want anyone to be afraid to call on the Lord that he's going to make you start doing all kinds of stuff you don't want to do. If it's sin, well, you know, times we got to address that and we got to say no. But he teaches us by the grace of God to say no to lawlessness or no to sin where we don't want to do it. That's an amazing thing. We beforehand were lovers of darkness and he changes us in such a way that there's a point where it disgusts us and we don't want to do those things. It's a miracle from God to make that kind of change in a person. But the other thing, even though he wants us to count the cost, see what's involved in following him, where we don't go into this lightly, we do go through life one day at a time. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. It has enough trouble of its own. You take one day at a time, this day, it has enough trouble in itself. But really, we should just take one event at a time as we're going through the day. And that's all we're required to do as we're presented with things, how we act or interact, with to do it in a way that honors God as best we can tell. And he says that he's going to work in us both to will and then to do his good pleasure. So 
to be afraid to come to the Lord because he might send me over to Africa. He might send me there. He might do this or he might. Don't even worry about that because the way that God works with the individual, he's going to work in us to where we want to do the very thing he wants us to do. And then he opens up the opportunity to do those very things. He's not going to make the desire there and then not open up the opportunity to fulfill that desire. So that's one of the beauties of Christianity. So you come to him, he'll work on you, he'll teach us. There'll be times we serve him well and we serve him poorly. And there'll be times we serve others around us and there's times we miss it. But you just keep coming, the righteous falls seven times and he gets back up. So the point is the Lord wants us to be like him and man, you start looking the way he was and uh, I'd say... I know i got a long ways to go, and I'd say there's a good chance you might too. But I want to thank you for listening. And like I always say, listen, you will learn great and mighty things that you do not know. And this material leads to life. It always leads to life. And you will indeed live.